Ali Baker, she, her, education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Tony Keane, adjunct associate professor at University of Notre Dame, where he used to teach London and science fiction and is now teaching Roman Britain and classical mythology. He's also worked in various roles within the BSFA and SFA. Hello, what have you been up to recently? (laughs) What have I been up to recently? Um, I've just come from an online conference on Wonder Woman, which uh, occupied the last week, weekend. which was great. It's 50 years since um, the Wonder Woman cover of Ms. Magazine, mm. Wonder Woman for President, and uh, so, uh, friends, a couple of friends of mine organised a conference to go through that, and I, uh, I have been partaking in that and uh, gave a speech at it. So, uh, and apart from that, I'm teaching uh, my summer course on Roman Britain uh, with, uh, with the Roman Britain students. Fabulous. And is that an in-person course? Yes, I'm actually teaching in person. Um, Oh, how nice. Last summer we did it um, online and the students were all in the United States. Uh, But this this summer they're actually all come over and uh, having the opportunity of actually seeing the things, which is is one of the good things that we really like. Because one of the things that we... Well, certainly I try very hard with the courses that I teach for Nature Dame is I try to make them courses that could not be taught in the same way um, at their home campus in Indiana. Yeah. And that involves a lot of going out and actually seeing things and saying, yeah, look, look at this bit of wall or mm. look at this space where there used to be a bit of wall, but it isn't there anymore because it's been buried, which is unfortunately <laughs> uh, one of the disadvantages of going around London, because London is not a city where its Roman past is part of the fabric in the way that if you go to somewhere like Rome or split or split or mm. uh, um, or any any number of Italian cities. Mm. Yeah, London's a city of palimpsests. I think it's like mm. one layer on top of another layer on top of another layer. So here are some stones that you know were roman stones <laughs> but were actually co-opted by people at a later date to build something else which um I, or of course you know this is where a statue used to be but it was taken away by someone and yes. put into a stately home in gloucestershire and they're they're fully yeah which which makes it interesting in many ways but like you say it's not particularly roman Mm. Um, in the way that other cities are. So you've chosen to read um, Tom's Midnight Garden. Um, can you summarise the plot for us? Uh, yes, it's it's 1958. Uh, Tom's brother Peter has gone down with measles. And therefore Tom has to be... Peter has to be isolated. Uh, the summer holidays have come up and 
Tom and Peter were looking forward to spending the entire summer holidays sort of in each other's company and mm. playing in the garden. Um, but um, but Tom has to be taken away. Um, he goes to stay with his aunt and uncle um, who live in a flat um, that's within a big old country house. Um, and... Tom's a bit bored and miserable and then uh, one night the clock strikes 13 mm. and he goes downstairs and he opens the back door and it gives him access to um, to the back to a huge garden and we eventually discover that this he's gone back in time that this is the guard, house and the garden as it was in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, and he meets... At first he thinks that nobody can see him, and then it transpires that uh, a young eight, nine-year-old girl, Hattie, can see him. And so uh, they become playmates and they play in the garden. And then gradually what Tom doesn't realise is that whilst he, he's going to the garden every night there are long gaps between mm. when he's actually visiting as far as Hattie is concerned and Hattie ages about 10 years in the period that Tom is there and by the end of the novel um, she's become a grown woman and and because she's become a grown woman, she moves on into adulthood, and Tom no longer has access to uh, the garden because of that. Um, but then, in a final twist, it turns out that Hattie and the landlady of um, of the flat that the uh, that Tom's aunt and uncle stay in um turns out that they're one and the same person yeah and there's a lovely uh reunion at the end between Hattie who by that point must be in her 80s mm. um and you know young Tom um and that's where the novel ends, and it's uh, and it's a lovely uh, little piece of writing. It's, uh, yeah, and it, it's um, it's something that I think is one of those books that's one of the beautiful things about children's literature is that, that it can be read on many different levels. Um, so, what's your first memory of reading it? Well, my first memory of the story is I saw it on television. Um, I saw a 1973 television adaptation of it. Um, and then um, I went into the local library and I they had a copy of it in the local library, so I got it out of the library uh, and I then read it. Um, 
which makes it one of very few of the sort of classic children's literature that I actually did read as a mm. child. So, yeah, I mean, I I read Five Children in it, but that was the only Nesbit I read. I didn't read any Lewis. Uh, I bounced off The Hobbit the first time. Um, <laughs> Get I, out! <laughs> How uh, dare you be part of SFF fandom? <laughs> um, I did read um, a lot of Enid Blyton's Famous Five, but uh, yeah, I didn't read Swallows and Amazons. And I suspect I didn't even read Alan Garner until probably my early teens, because I think I read it after I'd read Tolkien. Wow. But this this novel is something, and I I, I remember the basic uh, plot beats of it. Mm. So I remember the sort of turning up at the garden, turning up at the house, and Tom's getting access to the garden, mm. and and I remember the final moment where he goes into the garden and the garden's not there and he's just in fact in this small little backyard yeah. falls over the bins uh, and I also remember him then meeting uh, Mrs Bartholomew at the very end and her saying you know that was me yeah I was happy um but there's, I've not read it since since the mid nineteen seventies. So there's a lot I forgot. I've forgotten about it. I've forgotten. Uh, and there's there's a lot of levels I don't think I had to pick up on mm. at the time. So for I I don't think at the time I would have picked up on how absolutely desperate um, Aunt Gwen is to have her own child. Yes. Yes, that I'd totally forgotten that too, and and her and that that kind of tension of her trying to be a motherly figure, and Tom resenting her attempts to be a motherly figure, and also the way that her that his uncle cannot mm. relate to Tom at all. Mm. He he's he's almost. I now realise he's someone who probably didn't really like being around children that much, <laughs> which was something I didn't get at the time. I just thought, oh, clueless adult. But, yeah, yeah. He, he, he sort of treats Tom as as an adult who's just not quite as tall as he is and not quite as educa yeah. educated as he is. But nonetheless, he doesn't really... He doesn't really engage with... Uh, with Tom as a child, which is presumably got a lot to do with why they don't have they don't have any children of their own. Yeah, so. yeah, and it's yes. I mean, my I remember my teacher reading it to me, and I think the late seventies when I was at primary school. Um, and it is such a strange book in so many ways. Um, at the time that it was written in the, the late 50s and into the 60s and into the early 70s, there were a lot of kind of time slip stories, weren't there, with a variety mm. of different triggers to them. Mm. So it's not really, it's not like Tom goes to a place and goes through the clock or goes through mm. a door and finds himself in a magical place. In Tom's 
experience, he's not asleep. He's not mm. dreaming. He's definitely awake. But he can access the garden, which, as you say, is not there because the land was all sold off and, and it's all built up now. There's other houses around it. And what used to be the beautiful garden is now just a little bit of yard. And behind that, there's more houses. Mm. So what do you I think? I mean, it's definitely, I think, what Farmer Mendelssohn would describe as a portal fantasy. Yeah. Uh, in that, you know, he does go through this door yes. to get access to the fantastic world. And most times when he comes back through the door, he's then back in his own yeah world although sometimes he comes through the door and he's still in he's still in the past yeah sometimes he can access the house as it was when Hattie was a little girl but the triggers for this I mean he hears the clock strike 13 but the trigger for the time slip seems to be the affinity between Tom and Hattie and their experiences don't you think? It's well it's a very sort of circular it's a very sort of circular thing that's going on because Tom sort of sits and figures it out mm. at the end of the novel and he figures out that he's going to places that Hattie is dreaming about and it's yeah. Hattie is had his dreams about a particular time are what draw him into that particular time, which is why he hardly ever goes to the garden when it's not bright and sunny. Yes. Um, but at the same time, it's also fueled by his own desire to have access to a garden and not be trapped in mm. this pokey little flat where there's nothing to do. And you could have sort of written that in a sort of way in which, you know, those two psychic phenomena, if you want to put it that way, combine to create this, uh, a, this fictional experience out of the mm. garden. But it's not a fictional experience because, you know, she's, Hattie's having the dreams, but she's dreaming about things that have happened in the past. And there's yes. No, you know, the... I don't think there's any question that it's um, that it's real, and I think it's her as Mrs. Bartholomew that's that's mm. doing having the dreams. Isn't yes. it? it's not Hattie as a girl. No, so it's, which the, it's is... the adult Hattie dreaming about yeah the past, um, and sometimes dreaming about things in um, a non-linear order as well. Mm. One, one of the things. I had forgotten is that when he encounters Hattie as a very young girl grieving over her dead pet the graves of her dead parents he hasn't gone back through the door and then come out mm. again into this new time zone what's happened is that the time zone has slipped around him while he's been in the garden so he's just been talking to a Hattie that's considerably older. Yeah. And then all of a sudden she's not there. And he assumes that she's just gone in the house. But in fact, Mrs. Bartholomew is evidently dreaming about something, um, dreaming about a different 
part of the mm. past and I, you know having one of one of the very rare sad dreams that she has she mm. doesn't generally have sad oh, and I suppose it's 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 a bit sad when she falls out of the tree yes yes um, and she doesn't I, I think do you think it's significant that both Hattie and Tom are children who are not with their parents but are in this house. Mm. Is that something that you think is important <coughs> to the book? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I think so. It is. They connect with each other because they are both in various ways displaced. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for but we we don't specifically get it said for Hattie, but there's a strong implication, particularly when her cousin James is talking to his mother, her aunt, that in general Hattie's not having an enjoyable time while she's yeah. living there, and you know her the moments. The brighter moments are the moments when she meets Tom. Yeah. Um, until, until towards the end when James coaxes her into joining a wider social circle. Yes. Uh, from which eventually she meets Barty. Who, yeah. Um, who shall go off and marry? And it's, it's it's very obvious that that's a very happy marriage. That they mm. have. Uh, and Tom, similarly, he is removed from his parents, and he's not happy. And you know, he 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 does resent his aunt and uncle quite yes, quite does. a lot. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's definitely something of that. Yes, I think that Hattie's aunt and uncle, we don't really see a lot about of her uncle, but Hattie's aunt is a, is a different personality from Gwen. It mm. because she seems almost resentful of of Hattie oh, yeah, in Hattie's. some ways. Yeah. Oh, she absolutely resents um uh, you know, um she is one of these people who took in a child um, because she felt she had to, not because yeah. she really wanted to. Um, you know, Billy Connolly tells this story about being taken in by one of his aunts mm. um, after his mother had died. Um, or something like that, and he's he, he's saying, you know, I wish she hadn't done that because she only did it because she felt she had to, and she really resented mm. the. Uh... So yeah, um, Aunt Melbourne. Actually, we never find out what her first name is. We no, we don't. Ever yeah, Aunt Melbourne, but um, she absolutely resents Hattie's presence, and yeah, she's. She tells James flat out, yeah, none of you are marrying this girl. Yeah. She's got no money. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 I'm not having her lording it over this house. Yeah. Um, which, of course, ironically, is exactly what she does end up doing. Yeah. Because uh, Barty buys the house when uh, 
Oh, is it James that uh, mucks it all up? Yeah, because yeah. Edgar and the other brother, whose name I cannot remember, uh, they go off and do something else, and James ends up with the house and then basically mucks it up and loses it. Yes, yes, that's it. It's... Um, it is a really... It's such a fascinating book. Um, and I think it is... It is something that, that, as I said, I think a lot of classic children, what we now think mm. of as classic children's books, from the 50s up until the early 70s, they do a lot. It is about links to a land mm. and the way that that land survives and is continuous, whereas the people come and go. And I, I don't know whether this is a post-war, post-World War II thing yeah because it's certainly there in um certainly there in lewis isn't it yes very much there in in the narnia novels Mm. Um, and the idea of time slip and the way that time works differently in different places and when you're when people are in different states of consciousness is is definitely a thing in in the narnia books yeah i mean I, i find it interesting that this is a novel that I think has slipped a little bit into obscurity. Mm. I mean, it, you know, it wins the Carnegie Medal when it comes out, and yeah, and it's it's relatively popular. But then, you, know, you have the television adaptation in nineteen seventy three, and then it's nearly 30 years before anybody actually tries to mm. do an adaptation of it again, I think. I think, no, 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 that's not true. No, there's a television adaptation in the 1980s, I think, which I haven't seen. I think there is, because I'm pretty sure I did see that. Yes. Yeah. So, maybe... But I, I just feel it's slipped a little bit bit into the background in a way that things like Nesbitt and Lewis haven't slipped into the background. Yeah, I think that's right. And I certainly remember from my time as, as being a teacher, and I haven't taught in primary school for nearly 20 years now, but I do remember it being a, a staple book in primary schools when I was still a teacher, so in the 90s and the early 2000s. I wonder if it is quite so widely read now. Mm. Um, Ironically, I think that now, children reading it now would have a much better understanding of why Tom has been sent away from home Mm. because his brother has measles, because of um, the experience of COVID and isolation uh, and an illness that, cannot be just you can't just take drugs and get over it um and i think children would probably understand that Mm. better now than i really understood it certainly in uh in the 70s and 80s where i was sort of thinking well this is just a weird thing people used to do (laughs) in the olden days um Mm. but but not now and of course i mean measles Although, thank goodness, it can be more easily um, dealt with via antibiotics. But pre, pre the COVID pandemic was making quite a big, an alarming comeback. Um, I mean, it's, one of the things that does strike me about 
um, comes to Midnight Garden is is the lack of threat mm. in it. Yes. So yeah, there's nobody's ever in any real danger. I mean, even when Hattie falls out of the treehouse. Yeah. Uh, and when she and Tom go skating. Yeah. yeah. Sort of, You're yeah, almost it's, expecting the ice is going to crack and something's going to happen, and it doesn't. And the, and, it's and just the, a nice yeah. memory. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, and, and there's not... And for Tom, at least, there's not particularly a psychological threat because I... Because his aunt and uncle are basically decent, nice people. Yeah. And they don't, yeah, the uncle doesn't know how to deal with children. The aunt also um, overcompensates mm. because this is her opportunity to be a mother figure <laughs> yeah. that she's not had before and clearly wants it. But, yeah, they're basically all right, decent people. And, yeah, and Tom's parents in as much as we see them are basically decent people. I mean the only the only really unpleasant adult is is Hattie's aunt. Yeah, and yet I think it's it's quite a melancholy book. Oh it's I, I think it is melancholy, but maybe this is part of why maybe younger children might not get it because it's 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 very much about letting go of the past. Yeah. It's about things things change and they move on and you can't do anything about them. Mm. And, and that's not always a sad thing, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Yeah. So, so, you know, Tom, Tom is sort of doesn't notice that things are moving on mm. and that Hattie's getting older and that, you know, she's... She's ultimately moving away from him. Um, but he has eventually to come to terms with that. Hattie herself has to come to terms with the fact that the garden won't last for a mm. she, she has there's this brilliant thing line where she says that I was thinking the garden was here and it was permanent. It was mm. And then there's that lightning storm that demolishes, that brings down one of the fir trees. Yes. And she says, and I realised that not even the garden could be the same forever, forever. and ever. Everything. Yeah. So it, it, it is... It's a novel about things change and you have to... You have to live with that, yeah. and sometimes you lose things that you value, mm. and there's nothing you can do about it because the world moves on. Yeah, yeah, I th I think that's right, and and we we talked before about whether it is a ghost story, and we did come to the conclusion that it's probably not actually a ghost story, but there is there are ghostly echoings mm. of the house as it was. Yeah. So, if anything, Hattie's not haunted by Tom. Tom is not haunted by Hattie, but Hattie's haunted by the house in the garden mm. in her dreams. Yes. Yeah. In, in that way, it's sort of almost quite um, Menabillian or Mandalay <laughs> in, in, uh, in Rebecca um, or um, 
Thornfield Hall in in Jane Eyre, that kind of you know the how that what the house represents and what what the destruction of the house or in Patty's case the garden represents, um, and and it's yeah it, it's such a memorable book I think yeah I mean it, I'm, this thing about gardens is all very it is gardens have got this power and one of the things that's sort of in in my memory is I sometimes get confused between uh you know that that uh Tom's Midnight Garden and the Secret Garden mix yeah. themselves up in my brain a bit and partly that's because both of them have got gardener figures in them who Ultimately, you're on the side of the of your child protagonist and yeah. share a secret with the yeah. children that nobody else shares. So yeah. that's yes, I hadn't occurred to me, but yeah, you're right, absolutely. And funnily enough, there's a link between that mm. and and the book that I uh, I asked you to read, which is the Freedom Maze by Delia Sherman. Um, which was the winner of the Andre Norton Award. So, again, it's an award-winning book. Um, I'll read the blurb. America, 1960. 13-year-old Sophie is frustrated. Her mother has sent her to spend the summer with Grandmama on their family's old estate in sweltering southern Louisiana. Bored, lonely and far too hot, Sophie starts exploring. When she discovers an overgrown maze, she makes her way inside. Lost amongst its pathways, she finds a magical creature who promises her the adventure of a lifetime. America, 1860. Sophie is transported a hundred years into the past to the Oak River Plantation in its heyday. Her own ancestors mistake her for a slave girl and set her to work alongside the hundreds of other slaves who tend to the fields, the house, and the white family's every whim. As the reality of slave life becomes horribly clear, Sophie starts to wonder how long she'll survive and how, or if, she will ever get back home. So what, what links do you see between the two books? Well, the... If any. <laughs> They're both novels in which, as you say, somebody is displaced from the environment they want to be in and placed in yeah. the environment they don't want to be in. Um, and then get access um, to an adventure in the past. Mm. Um, however, it's a much less pleasant adventure in the yeah. past. Uh, and there's much more threat. Much oh, more absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, for, for start, the um, Sophie's actual family in 1960, they're terrible. Oh, they're, they're awful. people. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of eventually warm a bit to Aunt Enid, but yeah, her mother's a dreadful person yes uh, who um, almost the exact opposite of uh aunt gwen in yeah because she clearly doesn't actually want to have any children and certainly not a daughter like sophie yeah yeah um because yeah her, uh, sophie's mother was a southern belle mm. um married sophie's father their the marriage has ended you know very very shockingly 
in the southern US in the 1960 and Sophie is is not uh, is not a belle at all yeah. she's got frizzy hair she wears glasses she's a little bit overweight she she likes reading far too much uh, and is very shy and and not at all the kind of child that her mother or her grandmother want to have yeah I mean uh... and the racism Oh God! The so racism awful. is horrendous. And what's interesting, though, I think that's handled really brilliantly, is that at the beginning of the book, Sophie just goes along with it. Mm. So she's also she's taught to be wary of of um, black adults. She's wary of black adults unless they are her family's servants or who have some kind of service role. Um, you know, she she's uh, she's goes to a public bathroom and is told that she mustn't touch the mm. door handle because of, you know, yeah. black people might be sharing it. and The doors yeah. are doors are labelled whites only. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it is... Yeah, everybody's... Yeah, the preacher is... They're going to, they're going to Sunday school sermons mm. where they're sort of holding up the Bible and say, this chapter of the Bible proves that uh, desegregation is evil and the devil's work and yeah. yeah they are basically an appallingly racist family I think part of the reason that the creature puts her into the situation mm. that he puts her into is to unlearn her of that behaviour yes. yes which is absolutely unlearned or She's unlearned of that by the end of mm, it. She has. And one of, one of the things that, that I had forgotten about, because I did read this book when it was first published, which I think was in, in whoa, oh, 2011. Yeah, so it was, was I didn't probably read it in 2011, but I, I did read it a couple of years ago now. The fact that Sophie's mother would rather send her to a Catholic school and then absolutely horrifying her her Protestant family. She'd rather send her to a Catholic school than for her to go to a public school with a desegregated public mm. school, which is, you know, absolutely the history of, of uh, mm. education in the in the southern states of, of the US. Um, still a thing that happens today. Mm. Um, would you would you call this? A ghost story, or would you call it a portal fantasy? Do you think? I think I think it's a it's a portal fantasy. It's a, it's it's very definitely. I think a time it's a time travel story. It is. Yeah, uh, I, think I mean, so. it's it's very carefully worked out, and um, although the transport is is magic, nonetheless, there are certain sort of rules that are mm. put into place and yeah I mean she goes she goes back in time it's not like Tom's Midnight Garden where nobody apart from Hattie and Abel the gardener can see him she's absolutely she's she's there in the 1860s mm. visible to everybody um, everything about her is visible and um can we do spoilers? Are we allowed to do spoilers? Yeah, let, let's do spoilers. If you don't want to be spoiled, uh, fast forward at this point. When she comes back, 
she does finally get that and mm. there isn't a reset no I was expecting that she would come back on a reset um, and that you know she'd, she'd be she'd have been gone hardly any time and she would still be the same girl mm. phys physically the same girl that she'd always been now she has indeed hardly been away for any yeah. time she's only been away for about 20 minutes but She's still the six-month-older girl because she's been in the past for six yeah. months. So she's, um, you know, she's significantly taller yes. than she was when she when when she uh, originally went into the past. So, you know, this is this is a time travel story, and it's everything is real. Yeah. Um, so I, I I wouldn't call it a ghost story in any way. No, I think I agree with that, and also. What's interesting is that when she comes, her actions or what has happened to her in the past has affected nobody except except her herself. Mm. So she doesn't come back and find that all her family mm. are you know less racist and yeah. you know no longer have uh, the attitudes and the snobbish attitudes that they have. No, everything is the same. It's only her that's different, which kind of does. It's it's a bit odd that that's the ending of a children's book because the resolution is not at all what you expect mm. it to be but but she but she understands things about the family's past that yes. she didn't understand um before so she no understands that the reason she got mistaken mm. for a slave is that actually if you push it if you go back um, in generations to the mid 1860s her great great or whatever it is grandfather married one of his slaves yes and um, so you know there is you know black African heritage and ancestry yeah in there and the you know uh, the, all of the families, you know, that that her aunt and her mother have also got that, and they don't realise it. Yeah, um, I, I think that as an adult reader, I did pick that up quite um, early on. Yeah, I, I kind of suspect it I, word, I, when, when, yeah. when I was sort of reading it. I I was actually think expecting that the dad would turn out to be. At first, I was expecting the yeah. dad would turn out to have been black. Uh, but it's actually done rather more subtly than that. Exactly. But the, the way the family are described as Creole, mm. that kind of was the first thing that went, made me think, oh. And then also, you know, when, when they're kind of what they, the family are criticizing about Sophie's mm. appearance is about her hair. Yeah. And, um, you know, they don't like it when she runs around barefoot. And, and that, that sort of made me think think oh but like you I was expecting that her her dad was going to be mixed race but yeah so it's, it is a much more interesting mm. story although I think perhaps not quite the gotcha now reading it now mm. it's not quite the gotcha that we might have thought it would be mm. even 10 years ago um yeah, because of yeah. where we've been 
uh, or particularly in the the most the recent parts of the US where we've been and seen uh, the way that people can co-opt parts of their their racial past in order to actually make things more difficult for uh, mm. people of colour in in the country now or in the US now well globally now. Mm. Um, you know, we only we don't have to look too far in our own politicians no, no. <laughs> to to see that. No. I do I do like the way that when she comes back to to her own time, she can then find traces of herself in yeah. the past. She finds you know, a couple of thing, couple of references that sort of show that um, that she was she was there. Yes. Um, yeah. So her connections to her own family, or her the, her family's history at least, are deepened by her experience. I also think it's very clever that the the portal is the maze rather than the house, because mm. the house they're living in now is not the big house. It's not the big plantation house. It's a much smaller house, which kind of demonstrates the way that her family have come um, her family fortunes have changed but also that the the civil war is called the war of northern aggression yes early on in the book always yeah and that's how that's how her family views um that yeah. part of uh, you know that and the kind of confederate the history of the confederate states rather than um you know, there, there's no, there's no more kind of nuanced attitude. Yeah, I think there's, there's one point I think where she, Sophie thinks of it as the war between the states. Yes. But uh, the term civil war is never yeah. there at all. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of interesting things that sort of. One of the things I find very interesting is the false memory syndrome yeah. that's in there. That after she's been in the past for long enough, she starts to forget where she actually came mm. from. And you know, there's, a, there's a moment when she should have had, if, if she was who she said she was, you know, the, um, the slave of the younger brother, mm. um, sent up to the Oak House Plantation. She should have had um, a pass, given yes. permission to move around, and also some money. Um, and she said, you know, I lost those. They were, they were stolen from me. And then later on, you actually have her remembering the moment yes. when... That was stolen from her, and yeah, as the reader, you're looking at this, and you know, she can't remember this because this isn't what happened. happened. Yeah, but it's how she's explaining things yeah. to herself and creating a plausible narrative for something mm. that she can't otherwise explain, yeah. which is so interesting. But also, I think it says something about the dehumanizing nature of the mm. the um, the world she's living in. And the experiences that she's having, that she can't, she hasn't got access 
to understanding of herself as a relatively mm. privileged yeah. person from the 1960s because in some ways it would be quite dangerous for her mm. to even have the attitudes of the 1960s in 1860s. Well, I mean, it, it, it is. That's what you see in the yeah. earlier sections where she's, you know... Um, everything she says gets taken as being sort of sass. Yes. Uh, and she's she's not even trying particularly to sort of be argumentative. It's just she is responding to people in the way that a, a 13-year-old of the of nineteen sixty would respond a white thirteen a white thirteen yeah um, and but you met you mentioned the sort of dehumanizing thing of it I I think another side of this is the degree to which they're able to. Um, the the degree to which the slaves around her are able to maintain their yeah. human dignity yeah. and maintain themselves as human beings even though they are enslaved and treated as, as property and um, and maybe part of that is maybe that would have been harder to do had they not been in one of the more enlightened mm. slave owning Households, and I'm suddenly finding myself thinking of of twelve years a slave. Mm. And one thing that I that came to my mind when I was thinking about portrayal of slavery in the twenty first century is that quite a lot of it is about people unjustly enslaved. So mm. if you look at um, Ridley Scott's Gladiator, yes. Um, the big thing about Maximus's enslavement is that it shouldn't have happened to him because he yeah. is a Roman general, uh, you know, full, full, you know, full citizen. It should not have happened. And and similarly with twelve years a slave, your central character there is somebody who lives in the north and then gets kidnapped yes. and taken down to the south. Uh, I'm not sure what to do with that idea, but in some ways it all, almost sort of lets slavery, lets the system off the hook a bit. I agree, yes. And again, um, yeah, in, in here, you know, Sophie is somebody who should not have been enslaved because she was born a free girl. Yeah. And, you know, there's a certain... You know, there's a big difference between how slavery is depicted in Gladiator yes. and how it's depicted in something like Spartacus, yes. where, you know, Kirk Douglas's Spartacus hasn't particularly been unjustly mm. enslaved, except insofar as the entire bloody system is completely un yes, yes, unjust. yes. Um, I think that one of the one of the things that maybe it's more difficult for us as readers to get access to is the idea of the one drop 
uh, the one drop of blood mm. aspect of racialized um, citizen, well, not citizenship, not citizenship, but the idea that um, the the kind of the, the racial um, what's the word I'm looking for categorization of people mm. yeah. by race, which ultimately comes from eugenicist ideas of, the, of Britain. But this idea that um, blackness is a taint. Mm. So if you're tainted by one drop, that makes you black. So it doesn't matter in the 1860s that Sophie is light-skinned, that... Uh, you know, in the 1960s, she's passing as white. It doesn't matter mm. in the 1860s because she's not. Because despite her being, you know, they assume she is the child of the brother mm. um, whose plantation she's been sent from. Um, it doesn't matter that she's his child and that he's white. She is still a slave. And of course, that's that's how slavery was perpetuated mm. because of, you know, people being treated as chattel, and uh, and being bred rather than being mm. bought. Um, so I, I think it. I I think the first time when I read this, I didn't find it quite as not quite as believable. That's not the right word, but I I didn't quite get it mm. the way I do now, having read. And learnt more about about slavery. It. I keep also thinking about Kindred by Octavia Butler, mm. and it is nowhere near. Obviously, not. It's nowhere near as horrifying because Kindred really is a, mm. a horror story, isn't it? It's nowhere near as horrifying as Kindred because, of course, not. It's written for you know ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen year olds. But it is that that feeling of the tentativeness of um, rights and the tentative nature of um, because Sophie's mom and she are still impacted by the nature of the Southern Bell antebellum society um, that that her family comes from they are still mm. impacted by that and the expectations of the daughter of the house and so on so the way that you know Sophie's mum is a failure because her marriage fell apart and she's now working and Aunt Enid is a failure because she never married and the kind of pervasive disappointment that the grandmother, mm. you know, is throughout the house and her, her disappointment in her servants and all the rest of it. Um, and that, that still, it, you know, obviously it's not comparable with the experience of enslaved peoples, but it has still impacted them but in a different way hmm. I mean there's and you were talking about threat and it is in the 1860s I've sections constantly thinking that something really really nasty is about to happen yeah uh, and it never quite does yes uh, it's just before the Civil War. is. When did the Civil War start? Civil War breaks out in 1861. So, right, so um, it's a year before. 
It is. It is the year before it. The novel ends. The novel ends in um, October, doesn't it? So yes. it ends just before Lincoln is elected. Yes. Um, and that's. You know, you've got you've got people talking about you know if Lincoln gets elected then mm. you know, we're going to have to do something about that to protect our protect our slave owning rights. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's very interesting that at no point do you get soapy thinking that you know, uh, about all these people around the. Well, you know, as long as they can stay alive for the next three years or so, yeah, they will end up being freed. Yeah, emancipation proclamation will come through, and yeah, uh, that will do it. But there's, you know, you're right on the edge of a world that's about to change irrevocably. Mm. Um, with a with a massive loss of of um, massive loss of people, yes, um, both enslaved people and and white people, mm. um, yeah. So well, we, yes, I mean, uh, Mr. Beaufort uh, Waters doesn't make it through the wall. No, he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Probably shot by his own men. <laughs> Yeah. It strikes me as the sort of person who would get shot by his own men. And, and, and who can blame them? <laughs> and, and indeed, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and that, that's why one of the touchstones for the novel is uh, Gone with the Wind. Yes, yes. Um, because, again, that's ex about exactly the same period and, a, and exactly the situation of a world... This is about to be turned upside yeah. down. And, mm. and, and right at the beginning, Sophie says she can't bear Scarlett O'Hara, mm. who is supposed to be the epitome of the Southern Belle, <laughs> which is something I, I loved. And also that Melanie is massively annoying because, yes, Melanie is massively annoying. Um, so both both of those kind of, you know, emblems of, mm. of the, the, what the Southern woman is supposed to be like, you know, Sophie can't get on with either of them, um, which is, is quite fascinating. Mm. How can people find you online, Tony? How can people find me online? Ooh, um, all sorts of uh, routes. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I'm at, at TonyKeen46. Um, and you can also find um, find my blog, which doesn't get updated. Is it? Is it? it isn't completely dead. Uh, <laughs> it does still occasionally have things, and that's um, that's tonykeen.blogspot.com. That's great. Thank you, and. Um Thank you for listening to episode 23 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, on Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. 
You can subscribe at most of your favourite podcast places or download from Podbean. Please do rate and review if you can. It helps to satisfy my vanity. Thanks to Steve Vapertrails for production assistance and Jack Sadler-Johnson for the use of his beautiful track, Bliss. Until next time, bye. Thank you.